Toby Faber is the grandson of Jeffrey Faber, the founder of Faber and Faber. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I, I was amused to read recently that Faber and Faber, there's no such thing as two Fabers. There was just one Faber, and they liked the name so much they... There are lots of good stories about that. I think I think he just thought it sounded grander than playing Faber. It was a successor to a, a company that had been going for a few years called Faber and Guire. And so when the Fabers and the Guire split up, naturally there's some concern about what the company should be called. Perhaps the best story is that it was Walter de la Mare, a poet of himself, but also the father of one of the other directors of Faber and Faber, suggested you can't have too much of a good thing, so call it Faber and Faber. And there's a lot of good things, too, about the publishing firm that I'd like to get into with Thank you. you. Per- perhaps we could start then with a quote here that encapsulates the philosophy of your grandfather, if such a thing can do that. I'm quoting from Ian Stevenson's Bookmakers, published by the British Library in 2010. Faber's view that serious books could enlighten, shape, warn and rescue as well as entertain was the guiding principle of his new publishing house from the beginning. Faber embarked on a wide-ranging program from science to music and poetry and created a very distinctive high-quality list that, like Cape, had a distinctive typographic elegance. More importantly, the publisher married commercial and literary judgment in a unique and highly original mixture. Such a strategy continues to underlie its publishing approach today as one of the few successful imprints to maintain its independence from corporate ownership. I think that's true, yes. I mean, just from reading my grandfather's correspondence that he felt very strongly was that if an individual editor or director, which is pretty much the same thing in the early days of the firm, felt very strongly that we should publish a book then they would publish a book so there was collective decision making and collective support for the process of publication in the meetings that actually took place around this table even if everybody else disagreed that if one person felt strongly enough that it was a book worth publishing then the company would do that so they relied on the taste of each one of the directors then yes, did they? they did I mean I think in those days there was less of a financial risk involved in each individual publication than perhaps there is now. The numbers were one or two or three thousand, right, yeah. typically. So, and you weren't paying the big advances that you might or might not be now. That gives you more room for that sort of more, I wouldn't call it speculative approach, but more almost rigorous in the sense of academically rigorous approach to publishing and publishing really what you believed in. Yeah, we were taking some photographs in front of the best of Faber books, but really that's reflective of what the company has done, is to put in front of the public what they think is the best. Yes, part of the benefit of that approach is it gives you a brand name, so that the Faber name means something, so that nowadays we have the Faber book of whatever as one way of of exploiting that brand name. And I think that was a way in the 1970s, if you said best SF stories or best crime stories, or mm-hmm. there's a whole range, as we saw. You go back to the beginnings, and the mere fact that you've published it is indicative of what you think is the best. Yes. Uh, the, the reason I'm sounding hesitant is because if you then look back through the list, 
it's always been eclectic and there have been some pretty odd books on the list and I'm sure there have often been times when books are published for commercial reasons not just editorial reasons because you can't run a company on the basis of purely editorial reasons I'm afraid any longer I'm pretty sure for example those best of series that we saw published in the 1970s were mainly published for commercial reasons not because people thought this was great literature that would last and I suspect that none of those books I'm afraid are still in print but certainly with literature and poetry there would be quite a significant pool to choose from and a choice was made. Yes, from early on, the involvement of T.S. Eliot, right from the beginnings of the firm, even before it was called Faber and Faber, drew modern poets and followers of Eliot to Faber uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. So it meant that very quickly, actually, as a, as a really very young firm, because we were founded in 1929, we became known as the place to publish modern poetry. That has been true all the way through Faber's existence ever since, really. That creates its own benefits. It's the place where good poets still generally want to be published. If a reviewer or somebody browsing in a bookshop or a bookshop owner sees a work of poetry with that double F colophon on the spine, then they know that that's some sort of mark of quality. So you get this wonderful, frankly virtuous circle going into the poetry publishing. Obviously it has a a literary benefit for the firm. Frankly, nowadays it also has a commercial benefit for the firm. So where T.S. Eliot famously said, with both branches of publishing, the aim is to make as much money as possible. With poetry, it is to lose as little money as possible. <laughs> Actually, Faber's makes money now from publishing its poetry. It couldn't support a firm from publishing its poetry alone, but it makes money from it because it is able to exploit that virtuous circle and because enough of the works published over the previous 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years are now on school syllabuses or whatever, whereby they have such a steady backlist sale that they are clearly profitable publish. The profit that you make from that allows you some leeway in terms of moving closer to the merit of the literary work and away from the sheer desire to make money, no? Yes, we do publish some books with the expectation that they will never make any money or trying to lose as little money as possible. But generally, if if we publish something that we think might not sell very well to start off with, it's because we have the expectation that it will over its lifetime. There's no actual disconnect between being commercial and being literary, and indeed Fabers, I think, is in a very good space where it can exploit precisely the connection between being commercial and being literary. And therefore have a sort of a longer trajectory of returns on yep. investment. And now. part of the benefit of being independent, privately owned, is that we can make these long-term decisions without worrying the effect they will have on the next quarter's profits. So let's start now and go backwards. Sure. Who are some of these poets that you have taken more risk on? For a start, I wouldn't say we're taking a risk with new poets, really, because it's a relatively low investment that one is making with them. Okay. The risk you're taking, I suppose, is not really a financial risk, but simply a risk with the, with the favour name. You don't want to embarrass the name. I mean, this is a digression, but... Nobody remembers the embarrassing poets that T.S. Eliot published back in the 1930s because they are long since forgotten. Modern poets, successful ones who immediately come to mind, published in the last few years, somebody like Daljit Nagra with Look, We Are Coming Into Dover. Very different kind of voice, using the Indian diaspora voice in English literature, and a hugely successful book. Sort of a gamble to publish at the time, except an immediate success. (laughs) So, less well-known poets, we've started to publish in slightly more pamphlet form, called Faber New Poets, as a way of trying to open up what might be seen as a selective list to a, to a wider spread of new poets, some of whom are only just, I suppose, finding their voice and may in fact only have 10 or 15 poems that really are, if you like, worthy of being published or, in the judgment of the Faber Poetry Editor, worthy of being published. So people yeah. like 
Shakespeare events and all whatever. I mean, that's a name that springs to mind. There are about a dozen poets who fall into that category now. Then if we go back five or ten years, you've got people like... I almost find an invidious to pick out names because that implies I'm not thinking about the other ones. Sure. I never be talk about the more famous ones because they're easier. It's easier to justify talking okay. about them. <laughs> so people like Simon Armitage or Don Patterson or Joe Shapcut, all of whom came to favour in the last decade, roughly. Most of them will probably have been published for elsewhere first by one of the smaller poetry houses. Then at some point they move to favour and we're very glad to have them at that stage and they seem to be happy to move to favour at that stage. A certain pride, I'm well, sure. In... I, think so. I think so, of course I think so. It, it works well for everybody under that point of view, quite what the poetry houses who might feel that they nurtured them through their first collection yes, yes, that's <laughs> feel about that. I don't know. But I think, well, I think on the whole <laughs> they'll be pleased that poets whose work they admire is coming to somebody who I hope they'd recognise can give it more of a commercial airing yeah. than they will get with a... Um, smaller uh, with a smaller sales force smaller marketing all of that okay so can we uh, then go back to T.S. Eliot Uh, obviously they're his works that were published was he first published by the Hogarth Press Uh, I think he was The Wasteland was published and Proofrocker and other observations were published before Faber and Guire let alone Faber and Faber existed but by the time he came to Faber and Guire as it then was in 1925 I think all his other works were already out of print, so it was a relatively simple matter for him to bring those works with him to Faber and Guire when he joined the firm as an associate director and a literator. I can't remember his exact title, I'm afraid. So bringing him in at that stage in his career, he was recognised as He was recognised as a leading modern poet. He wasn't so famous that I think my grandfather had heard of him. before he met him. He already had his magazine, The Criterion, that he was editing uh, with help from a sponsor. So he was editing, he was producing The Criterion, and he was also, of course, working in the International Department of Lloyds Bank. Not very fulfilled. Not very fulfilled, but clearly rather good at that. I mean, there's no question that actually he he was a good banker, and I think it would be, that's the kind of thing people forget now when they think about it. And that was part of the attraction of him to Geoffrey Faber, was that here was a poet, he also knew how companies worked, and um, yeah. However much we talk about the early Faber and Faber not being commercial, clearly my grandfather knew that he needed to have people who understood how a profit and loss account worked, basically. Um, yeah, an unusual bird, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, the perfect person to yeah. bring into that sort of new publishing company. Um, and so one of the first titles on, on the first list of Faber and Guire was T.S. Eliot poems. Up to that date, I've come up with that title again. So in addition to his financial savvy... He was able to bring immediately a, what, a, a list of some of the greatest poems. Have they been recognised as great poems? They've been recognised as influential poems, and I think important among a small group of people, but no, they haven't been recognised, I think, as the great poems that we do all now recognise them for now. Okay, so it wasn't as if your grandfather had... It wasn't a coup or anything. It was more, here's a young man who's written poems that have had an influence, but... It wasn't the merging of two great... No. I think the main thing was that they got on terribly well, okay. my grandfather and his they, yeah. they became really good friends very, very quickly, corresponding, talking with each other. As I say, they first met, I suppose, towards the end of 1924. 1927 was when my father was born. T.S. it was his godfather. Played a big role in his life and you know, would come on holiday with my grandfather's family and all of that. It was a real sort of meeting of minds there, I suppose, and they, they, they really enjoyed being in each other's company. A pretty great lesson for anyone who's thinking of setting up a company. Yes, 
I think there's room for lots of different different models there, but clearly that was a congenial model for my grandfather. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other sort of directors who sat around this board table, people like Richard Delamere, the son of Walter Delamere, who had an editorial role and also took an early responsibility for the design and production um, yes. of the books, which I'm sure we're going to get onto. Yeah. He, I'm sure, fitted into that set as well. And mm-hmm. Frank Morley, an American who was with the firm for the first 10 years of his existence, a very, very good friend of my grandfather. Sounds like it would be a pretty fun time around this table then. There are certainly stories which you may have read about book committees being enlivened by various jokes, practical jokes being played on my grandfather, with T.S. Eliot and Frank Morley being the two main participants. Provocateurs. Yeah, provocateurs. Mm. Okay, so what did T.S. Eliot do? How did he proceed? He was a publisher. Obviously he carried on writing poems and as he wrote poems then they would be published by Fabers. But he was a publisher, along with everybody else really, of a, of a very wide spread of books. I'm not enough of an expert on his publishing to know which books were brought to the firm by T.S. Eliot, apart from obviously the poetry. But there's no doubt that he participated very fully in the publishing business of the firm, and at the same time continued to edit the Criterion, which is a very influential literary journal that mm-hmm. he brought to Faber and Guire, as it then was, and which carried on being um, essentially published by the firm under his editorship right up until the outbreak of the Second World War. And that was another way in which he identified promising young writers who might eventually come to have books to be published by Faber and also maintained his influence or spread his influence as a poet and as a critic, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great way to pull in what's, what's out there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a model that's followed nowadays by, I suppose, Granter is the obvious example that has a publishing house attached to a magazine. I guess financially it's more difficult to make it work nowadays. In fact, I'm not sure it ever worked terribly well, mm. even in my grandfather and T.S. Eliot's day. It obviously worked from some from one point of view in terms of the literary aspect of things. One of the recognisable aspects of the Faber books early on were these bright... I think they originated with Gallants and Stanley Morrison, these bright yellow and sort of purple covers which often had blurbs on the front of them. Yeah. The early Elliot editions had bright yellow with a ribbon going down the middle of them in red. Did Elliot bring in any particular designers that were no, avant-garde? Elliot, uh, the design is much more likely to have been led by Richard de la Mare rather okay. than T.S. Elliot. Right. I'm not sure I can answer specifically for the design of the covers. There is a book that we've produced recently which may have more information. If you go into the firm's archives, you can trace, for example, the production department's correspondence with the editorial department about poetry layout, for example. So looking at the in- inside the books in terms of the design of how the stanzas of Ash Wednesday or whatever of T.S. poem are set out, a lot of that you'll find even at the level where you think the poet might take an interest. It is actually much more the design and production department mm-hmm. who are suggesting how this layout should be done rather than the poet or the editorial. So I'd suspect that the same is true of the outside of the books as well, where naturally you start to get a sales angle too, although I suspect the sales angle didn't start to play too much of a role in Fabers for a while. Because? Because of the faintly faintly (laughs) high-minded way in which the firm firm was being run. I mean, that's not to say high-minded at the point of stupidity, but Fabers, I think, has always been a leader editorially. It's taken a lot longer. I think other firms have led in terms of 
sales and marketing. W.H. Auden came on very, very early. Young. I collect Auden. I don't have the, fir- <laughs> the first. It's just poems, I think. It's around 1930. Yeah. Obviously a very collectible and giant poet of the 20th century. Did he submit its title? My memories of these stories merge into each other, but either he was encouraged, refused but encouraged, or right. accepted straight away. I can't remember. Okay. We've got Auden. We've got this group of yeah. Stephen so, Spender well, and... Uh, uh, let's not forget Ezra Pan, very important influence on Elliot. Elliot brought into Faber. Of course, Elliot dedicated The Wasteland to Ezra Pound. A pound rewrote well, parts of it. it. There's an edition that I have of The Wasteland that actually has... Which was edited by Valerie Elliot. Yes. Oh, T.S. Yeah. Elliot's widow. Facsimile edition. Yeah. Yes. A terrific work of scholarship bringing the poem back alive. I may be getting my pronunciation wrong, but as I remember, the, the dedication to Pound from Elliot is Il Miglio Fabro, Fabro which obviously was written long before Faber and Faber ever existed and means the greater craftsman, or words that effect. The common joke was that you could translate it as it's better with Faber. <laughs> and indeed, as a pound did come to Faber. So he is obviously an early one, yes. And uh, you've already mentioned Auden. Auden, guess, when he was very young, went to Iceland with McNeese, of course. Yeah. So letters from Iceland from Stephen Spender, another very early one. I think those are the main names that we'd still remember from the 30s. And that's not to say that there weren't lots of other people published as well, because there were just not so many of them have lasted through to posterity. And of course, I'm hesitating now because I'm wor- worrying that I've forgotten one. I mean, there were Americans, Marianne Moore, for example. Who was a friend of Auden's. Yeah, published quite early. Then people like Wallace Stevens, and, but I think we're getting a bit later. You, you had you had Eliot and then Auden. The fact that other poets were impressed with this work would have added yes, slowly it, it creates to the that, creates that virtuous circle the, I was mentioning before. Yeah. But I, I mean, with gaps. It's a process that has probably, if anything, gathered gathered steam over the last two or three decades, yeah. rather than slowed down. But because they're on curriculums, the, yeah. these great poets continue to come out, and every time they come out, there's a Faber uh, label attached. It's a great, as you say, promotion of quality. Yeah. The, the eye that your editors had, it's fairly obvious, but you would be seeking great editors to keep up that tradition that is i think yes exactly I, we have always been editor- an editorially led firm yes. so who was the one after uh, elliot after then? elliot was essentially charles monteith the last great poet associated with elliot bringing on is uh ted hughes and sylvia who, plath too and sylvia plath came with ted hughes in fact she typed up his poems and sent them into favor for him <laughs> quite apart from her poetry in its own right elliot himself I'm not sure if he ever knew, even knew that Sylvia Plath was a poet, although he must have done, I suppose, by before he died. Died in 73? Uh, Elliot, 65. Uh, Auden, I think it might be 73. The, so Charles Monteith had joined soon after the war as, I suppose, as, a, as an editor. Fairly early on, famously, had discovered Lord of the Flies on the slush pile, already rejected by... Cape, wasn't it? Dozens of other publishers. It was a dog-eared manuscript. It had already been rejected by the Faber Reader who'd said sort of unreadable story about nuclear war and children on a desert island, and clearly hadn't read very far into it. In particular, hadn't got far beyond the first chapter, which was all about the outbreak of a nuclear war and children being evacuated and stuff like that. Of course, Lord of the Flies now famously starts with the children being already on the desert island, so that was, if you like, 
not Monteith's only insight, but one of his great insights was that it would start much more powerfully if you cut out that first chapter. He had that manuscript. It was all he had to read on a train down to Oxford, so he actually did read read beyond the first chapter and you know, worked with Golding to make it into a better book. That's as if you like his famous discovery. Future, he won the Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize, yeah. Although he was, I don't think his title was ever formally poetry editor, he had responsibility for the poetry list along with others. And so he brought in, for example, Seamus Heaney. Tom Gunn might have been Elliot. Charles carried on into the 60s and 70s and probably brought in, for example, Paul Muldoon. And in the 1980s, Craig Rain was poetry editor. Then it was Chris Reed. And Craig had been extremely selective in what he brought onto the favour list. But it's only published successfully people like Douglas Dunn and Wendy Coke. Chris was more accepting of people into the list. With Chris, we brought in some of the names I mentioned earlier, like Simon Armitage, like Simon Armitage and Don Patterson. Look, uh, Caroline Duffy. Caroline Duffy, we published her children's poetry. I was rather pleased when she said in an interview soon after she became poet laureate that actually she was writing because of the ages of her children. It was her children's poetry that was most important to her now. There's been some great lines about the poet laureate and how their fire is basically snuffed out once they get under the... Philip Larkin yeah. rejected it, I think. Philip Larkin, I mean, <laughs> he's another one who famously had his first collection published by a small poetry house, which has caused issues ever since, really, in terms of when everyone tries to do collective poems or things like that. Who's um, that? I think they call the Marvel Press up in Hull. Ted Hughes, uh, after John Betjeman, who wasn't a favourite poet, died, became poet laureate. Yeah. That was when Philip Larkin turned it down. Ted took the role very seriously because it was part of what he believed strongly in, the sort of link between the monarchy and the people and some of the sort of the more mystical aspects of that uh, connected strongly with what he believed and wrote about. Sometimes that manifested itself in brilliant poems, sometimes it manifested itself in poems that other people, I think, struggled to understand the importance of. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't Um, declawed? He he wasn't declawed, and famously, if you like, he had this amazingly successful outpouring in the last two or three years of his life that we all remember birthday letters yeah that must um, have been a huge which was a huge bestseller and an amazing experience and a wonderful experience to publish uh, only overshadowed by the fact that ted was dying soon after it came out but even before birthday letters he'd won the prize the year before with tales from ovid which was his translations uh, translations Mm -hmm. which um, again are big sellers i mean and not just Ovid, but uh, a whole range he, of had, Yes, Alcestis. I mean, a whole range of stuff in those last two or three years. And then, of course, Ted was succeeded as poet laureate by Andrew Motion, another paper poet. I think it was, it was Andrew who suggested it should only be a ten-year position. Mm-hmm. And Andrew certainly used the role very much to promote poetry and to advance the cause, if you like. We talked about, uh, and I'm speaking with uh, Toby Faber. I introduced you as the grandson of Geoffrey Faber. Is there something else that we might want to add to that? <laughs> what else have I achieved in my life? <laughs> it's not all about nepotism yet. <laughs> I did lots of things. I had a successful career in business. Before I came to Faber's, I was managing director of Faber's for five years oh, Okay. in the late 90s. Then I left to write my own books, not published by Faber. <laughs> that, would be, that would be nepotism. They're acknowledged as... They've done all right. And now I'm back on the board of Faber and Faber as a non-executive but it is run by other people. Okay. You're on the board to what? Why am I on the board? Yeah. Um, Just the name? Well, I, the company, as we've discussed, remains independent and remains 50%, 50% owned by my family, so need that to be on the board sense. from that point of view. <laughs> I, hope I hope I provide more in the way of help and advice than just that. What are you doing with our firm here? That's our money you're playing with. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I wonder if we could look then at the list from the perspective of a collector. Uh, obviously, these great names are probably among the most collectible of books that are out yeah. there. But are there titles or series going back to the beginnings that mm -hmm. you might direct collectors' attention to that, that aren't so high profile? One series that I love, but I'm sure most collectors will already know, is the Ariel series of poems. I'm talking about the Ariel poems that Faber started publishing in the 1920s on into the 1930s which is a great series. I think there are about 30 or 40 in the series altogether. Booklets, aren't Single they? poems, yeah. illustrated with woodcuts, almost always, I think, sold with their own envelopes, I believe, as well, yeah. and intended to be used as essentially gift cards. I've got the Auden one. You've got the Auden uh, one. Well, they're beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. And they're, they're, they're lovely objects in themselves, and I think that's part of, again, going back to the design philosophy, which largely comes from partly from my grandfather, but in particular, as I said, from Richard de la Mare, and he was... I'm pretty sure the guiding light behind that, behind those aerial poems. So what was that philosophy then? That books should have a, a beauty as objects, mm. quite apart from the text that they contain. So um, woodcuts, fine paper? Woodcuts, fine paper, and fine typography. Probably slightly less em emphasis on eye-catching jackets, elegant jackets. And so there was that first series of the aerial poems, and they are, are undoubtedly immensely collectible. And then there was a second series in the 1950s, which was an attempt to revive that brand and that idea, which certainly commercially was not quite so successful, and I suspect the individual poems are slightly less collectible as a result, but nevertheless there are some fine poems um, in that second series as well. Going back to the first series, some of, for example, T.S. Eliot's most famous poems were first published as aerial poems, so something like, I'm pretty sure, Ash Wednesday or Journey of the Magi. That's the obvious series, because I think generally we haven't tended to publish many books as series. Right. We then get on to individual books. And as with any of individual books, the ones which are most valuable are the first editions where nobody has expected when they were published that they would be as successful as posterity has made them. Because the runs are so tiny. Since the runs are, the runs are small, so therefore the benefit of rarity. And there, the obvious example again is, I suppose, Lord of the Flies. Certainly a, a first edition of Lord of the Flies with a decent dust jacket will, I'm sure, set you, set you back a couple of thousand. As time goes by with Golding, the value of the, the actual book goes lower and lower because the runs become larger yeah, and larger yeah, and larger. I know the paper fine. man is you can get for a couple of quid. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm sure the Inheritors and the Spire, uh, Pinch and Martin, those early ones, must all still be worth something in first editions, because it was really only in the 1960s, so about ten years after Lord of the Flies came out, mm -hmm. that that book, Lord of the Flies, started to be the success it was, I think originally on American campuses, so it started okay. to build Golding as a global name, and then obviously the print run started to rise as a result. The Alexandria Quartet. Mm -hmm. Lovely books. Striking jackets. Yes. I came but across that set just the other day. Mm. The thing is, it's one of these questions. The first editions are worth thousands of dollars, but I was able to pick up three or four of them in fifth printing Yes. In, with beautiful jackets, and so they, they didn't change them. I mean, they no, they'll be do. they'll be the same lovely objects, but they won't have the same rarity value. So that brings in another character in the in the Faber pantheon, if you like, Bertolt Volpe, who was a refugee from Germany, I think, before the war, who started working at Faber's, and he was uh, one of the great typographers. Among the typefaces he designed is the Albertus typeface, which anybody can see on their computer screens these days, but is in particular 
the typeface that is used for the street signs in the city of London. So a lot of the covers from the 1950s to the 1970s have this typographical look to them, and occasionally with other things like the palm print that you see on the Justine cover. But a lot of people, when they think of a fame cover from that era, will think of something with these sort of very striking blocks of text, sometimes painted on almost, sometimes printed on, sometimes handwritten. It's a, some very sort of imaginative different ways of using typefaces to convey what you're doing. So that might be another uh, collection, the collection of uh, Volpe's Yes, you'd be, you'd be collecting for a long time if you tried to, cover, tried to collect every book designed yeah. by Bertolt Volpe, but yes. We're talking and And you, 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 you then start getting into individual disputes about what was really designed by Bertolt Volpe and what was designed by his assistant. Did he sign any of the jackets, do you know? No, I don't think so. Because there's a, a well-known uh, designer, Alvin Lustig, who mm. worked for New Directions in the States, and he signed his jackets. But I don't think so. I think there was a more corporate feel to it, if you like, than that. Although now we talk about Bertolt Volpe at the time, people have just said, oh, it's paper and paper, basically. You came out with a book recently, is it the 80th anniversary? Yeah. It's, what, a lot of jacket covers? Yes, through the decades. Joseph Connolly, who is himself a Faber author and also a bibliophile, he has written his own books about collecting. collecting. Books about that might be a fun thing to do, is to get that book and then chase down some of the covers. Yes, and as we all know, the books with the decent, the dust jacket is worth about twice the <laughs> twice as right. much as the book underneath. Absolutely, that would be a, a fun thing to do. There, there have been books that have been published specifically for the collector's market, even when they are published. Oh, that's right, the limited edition. So, for example, signed. limited edition, signed limited editions of some of the major poets like Hughes and Heaney. There's a book called Hockney's Alphabet. David um, Hockney. David Hockney. Mm. Yes, which I've never seen actually. It's published obviously as a way of making money, and a lot of these things for a long time didn't sell properly, and now, of course, is almost impossible to get hold of. But the there was a period when there were copies sitting in the paper warehouse. <laughs> Just in piles of them, right? And now they're worth thousands of dollars each. Me, yeah. <laughs> if you only knew. Uh, what about the more recent titles then, that the ones that you have sitting in the warehouse that you think could be the next Hockney's alphabet? Well, if we knew those, then they... Well, they haven't <laughs> hit the, They haven't hit yet. They haven't hit yet. I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? So the problem is that these days... You can't keep things, unless they cost a lot to produce, like Hockney's Alphabet did. You can't just keep them sitting around in the warehouse in the expectation that at some point they might turn into something valuable. You what wouldn't you, be what, remaindered, though, would they? Or would they? Well, we, yes, we do. I mean, if we've got you know a few thousand too many yeah. of it, then you can't hang on to it and just keep up space in the warehouse. It doesn't have any, any good if you do that. I suppose what the question you're asking is, are there books that we've published which we remain convinced we were right to publish and the market is simply behind us and doesn't yet realise quite what brilliant books they are. Yeah. And arguably we might, we might say that about every book that we published except. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't try and pick names. No. You've mentioned the Hockney book. Are there other books in that category? Well, that, there's, another that... Book, there's another book that actually comes to mind and again it's one that was signed and this was a book called The Melancholy Death of Oyster Boy which was by Tim Burton. Uh, the movie director. Uh, the great movie director, who wrote these very, very quirky short stories with his own illustrations mm -hmm. straight out of his imagination, which we did as an ordinary book. And then we also did a limited edition on the side. Limited edition cased, not particularly produced in a different way, but signed each limited edition signed by Tim, which we expected, naturally, would do well. But somehow they never... I think we just didn't sell them properly or something. So for a long time, we did have a lot of copies of that sitting around. But they have all gone there. When did those come out? 
That was 99-ish. What about any other crossover? Uh, I, mean, I think of Nick Cave. John Lennon's uh, lyrics uh, yes, were published are. as a, a book of... I mean, the famous John Lennon books, of course, are in his own right in Spaniard and the Works, which were published when he was at the height of Beatlemania. Mm-hmm. Sadly, not a paper book, but famously the first. The first one of those, I can't remember which one it is now, was published very apologetically by whoever it was. Very small print run. And I think I have my own copy of that one, actually, because mm-hmm. I found it in a junk shop. It seems to be the first printing, but who knows about yeah, that. Yeah. We published Paul McCartney's lyrics and some poems as well as a book of poetry called Blackbird Singing in 2001. Yeah. The obvious book from recent times where we expected it to be successful, but its success outweighed our dreams was Birthday Letters, where we ran a very good publicity campaign which basically involved keeping it secret, talking only to head offices of bookshops to get large quantities scaled out to the bookshops and then having an exclusive serialisation deal with the Times, actually, to break the news of it. And we all knew it would be big news. He'd kept this uh, bottled up inside him. I don't know if he wrote them at the time or not. He wrote over a period of years. He was reticent to comment on all the attacks that were made against him for his behaviour. Yeah, So, uh, obviously, this was... They were also immensely powerful, moving poems. That, I suppose, is what propelled the book way beyond... Uh, what our initial expectations have been. Although in retrospect, perhaps everyone should say it's obvious, but all these things are relevant. But so therefore, the first printing of birthday letters, I wouldn't say it was tiny. Cause we'd no, I've got a first of that. We'd always had expectations of it, but it, I mean, there were many subsequent printings. Yeah, I've seen, I think um, there's at least 19 printings. Yeah. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say invest your, <laughs> no. invest your pension in the first printing of birthday letters. but Because there would have been, what, uh, 20,000, 30,000? Something like that, I should think. Yeah, yeah. okay. If um, we can then just sort of cast our mind back through all the titles. We've got the series, both in the, in the 20s and 30s and the 50s. We've got the great uh, authors, the obvious authors. And, I mean, just to be to be clear, the first editions of Auden or Elias or Spender or McNeese or anybody like that from the 1920s and 1930s, they will be worth a bit of money if they're yes. nice, yeah. nice cover on them because yeah. they will have been published in relatively small print runs to start off with because that was the way one did it then. Who else... Or what else? Is there? You've mentioned the designer. You've mentioned the series. We've got the authors. We've got limited editions. We've only talked about poetry really so far. And really, yeah. from the 1920s and 1930s, it's interesting. It's really only in the last 30 or 40 years that Faber has become more known as a fiction publisher as well. But it started off as a nursing, didn't it? Nursing it did. science. Yeah, before it was ever Faber and Guire, it was a scientific press. We haven't got too far into the ancient history of the firm, mm-hmm. uh, with its main publication being The Nursing Mirror, which I think mm-hmm. still still goes. But oh, no, it, okay. it was the sale of The Nursing Mirror that enabled my grandfather to buy out the Guires when it changed from Faber and Guire to Faber and Faber. Um, so that it's now published by somebody else. Can you? Mm-hmm. But right up until the 1970s, we had a flourishing medical list. In fact, I think we only shut it down in the early 90s. Um, and got into music at that time, or was that a much earlier... So the music... Public publishing, so there's now a separate company, an entirely separate company, although it's housed in the same building, called Favour Music. That arises out of a letter from Benjamin Britten, the great British post-war composer. Who Auden did the libretto for? Yes, who collaborated with Auden on a number of things, I think. Mm-hmm. He was having problems with his then music publisher, Boozy and Hawks, in the mid-60s, and wrote a letter to a friend of his who was working at Favour and Favour, saying, what a pity there isn't a music publisher like Favour and Favour. So Favour and Favour wrote this letter and took the hint, if you like, and started up a company which, as they say, is now separate. So Faber Music publishes the last ten years of Benjamin Britten, then more recent composers who, if you like, the 
the current equivalents of Benjamin Britten, people like Thomas Adders and George Benjamin and Julian Anderson and Oliver Nusson, I mean, a, a great array of great contemporary composers. And then it has another side to itself as well, which is educational music publishing. To sheet music? When you are a music publisher of a composer, you tend to control all the rights in that composer. Most of the money, for example, made by the Britain estate will be from performances of their work rather than the sale of the sheet music associated with those performances. So the publisher will be administering those rights on behalf of the composer. For all of the performances of Britain's works, you of would... Those works he wrote in the last ten years of his life. Favourite music will administer those and may or may not hire out the music associated with it or sell the music associated with it, but will also collect performance fees. And in the case of operas, and he wrote, for example, Death in Venice, uh, towards the end of his life, when there are performances of those the publisher will be responsible for collecting what's called grand rights income and then sharing that with the composer. Doing deals with the record, CD? Well, that's a different sort of income. It's immensely, <laughs> music publishing is an immensely complicated thing. So Do you get a part of that or uh, not? Yeah, all of that, yes. All you, get of a, that. You, get a, you get a part of all of that. I mean, obviously, it's, it, the, publisher, the, the composer himself gets the bulk of it, but the publisher is chasing it on his behalf and gets their percentage on the way through. The same holds for Paul McCartney? Paul McCartney... Well, famously, again, this is nothing to do with favour and favour at all. Michael Jackson? Um, exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McCartney and John Lennon, famously, when they had first written, I think it was Love Me Do, got themselves signed into this new company that was set up, of which they owned a percentage called Northern Songs, was their music publisher, and Northern Songs went through its various permutations and ended up, of course, being owned by Michael Jackson, rather to Paul McCartney's chagrin. Since then, Paul McCartney has, of course, set up his own publishing company. So and you would be working with him on... So in terms, in terms of the just our, our publishing of the lyrics in Blackbird Singing, if that's what you're talking about, yeah. then we have no rights at all over the music there, and no, indeed no rights over the lyrics. All we've done is publish that particular textual form of the lyrics. Yeah, the text, not the actual um, sheet. As it happens, Faber Music is Paul McCartney's publisher on his classical music. Oh, yeah. So in that sense, we will be providing that publishing service at least to a certain extent on his classical music, but in, as I say, he has his own publishing company as well, so it's a sort of a joint aspect there. Yeah. Is it collectible? Is the sheet music? music? Well, the yes, there are collectible. So, for example, again, there have, there have been the deliberate attempts to exploit the collectability of it. So, paper music has in the past done some limited editions, signed limited editions, for example, of Benjamin Britten works. So those will be worth something if you can come across those. They may have done Death in Venice, Children's Crusade, would be the sheet music yes okay there's another sheet music side to favor music which is the educational publishing so if you're learning the saxophone you're as likely as anything to be doing it using a a publication that is published published by favor music so it has a a big and flourishing sheet music side and then associated with the composers i mentioned earlier the classical music composers there will also be sheet music publications associated with that i don't know about that collectability actually it may be a fruitful thing for somebody to start thinking about Collecting is basically about making the case for for something. A lot of these works may only be performed once, so in that sense, the the important ones will be properly published as publications available in the Faber Music catalogue. Or if they enter, if you like, the repertoire to a certain extent, they may or may not be published in that form, but they'll be available on hire. So orchestras who want to perform the latest work by X will uh, contact Faber Music Hire Library and hire the work. And you period. would print off however many they yeah. wanted. Yeah, but there are the ones that are published properly and sold properly, and it may be worth somebody who is a fan of a particular modern composer mm -hmm. thinking 
perhaps I would like to collect all the publications associated with her work. Yeah, Sting came out with his lyrics uh, recently. Yes, years. I imagine that too had a relatively large print run. I'd say, yeah. Uh, the benefit of this music is that it has quite small print runs. I mean, it's just like with the books, isn't it? What you are looking for is the work that you think will have the long-lasting value for posterity. Yeah, or as you've said, something that you love. Yeah. You know, if there's something that speaks to you that... Well, that's absolutely right. You hope that they're the same thing in the end, I suppose. So what else? The other design aspect is in the early 80s, we started to link up with Pentagram. They designed, for example, the double F colour font. Yeah. And they also started designing the paper covers, and the paper covers started t- taking a very striking Pentagram-inspired look. So anybody who's a fan of sort of the modern design of Pentagram... Pentagram um, is a, what, a well-known graphic design firm? Yes, it is. Would they be identified as such? Well, on a book, you mean? Yeah, we would look for that in your book of book see, covers. Yes. The interesting thing about this is you're doing us a service here by reflecting on the collectability of these publications and the ones that you think merit attention. But Faber isn't necessarily going to benefit from collectors going out and buying these unless you've still no, got true. them in your warehouse. Yeah. Otherwise, these people are going to be going out and looking for them in, in used second-hand bookstores. Yes. Primarily. I'm afraid that's true. But, I mean, I think the benefit, it's, it's a less obvious benefit, I suppose, but the point is that, in the end, the books which are collectible are the ones which have some sort of lasting literary and, therefore, frankly, commercial value. Well, and I think it would cement this attachment hmm. to your house. There's, there's some great-looking books and with some lovely covers and lovely field books as well. Actually, there's one other series I'd like to talk about. Okay. Which um, arose out of a sort of, if you like, out of a commercial problem. In the mid to late 90s, we were having real problems with breaking new fiction in the UK, where the standard model always was that you started off with a hardback, and that got the review attention and the respect, if you like, and then a year later, on the back of that, you would launch a paperback. And the problem we had was simply that, while we were still getting the review attention really associated with the hardback, we simply weren't getting enough copies out into the stores ever, at the time of hardback, ever to exploit that review attention, and therefore, by the time the paperback came round, retailers were looking, and however good the reviews had had, if they'd seen this under a thousand copies had sold of the hardback. They weren't inclined to take very many of the paperback and that didn't do very well either. So our response to that was, uh, as many people's response has been, in fact, to have a trade paperback edition. Simultaneous? Not simultaneous with the hardback in its own right, a trade paperback edition. That would be the first edition. First edition, first way of launching a hardback. And in particular, Hmm. we came up with this design, which I still think is one of the most elegant and beautiful designs. I think that might be a very good place for people to start collecting. It's the jacketed paperback. It's got a lovely feel in the hand. We really thought quite hard about the design of it. Ron Costley, who was the Faber's interior designer, had a role in this in terms of the actual shape of the book. Although it's as high as your standard, if you like, trade paperback, demi size, it's slightly narrower, which has a nicer feel in the hand, flops open in your hand the way that you want to read it. And then with Pentagram, we came up with this design where you have your full-colour image on the jacket that goes around the outside, and then on the inside, which normally you never see, of course, we realised that for no extra cost you could still have two colours on that. So the best versions of those have these lovely two-colour illustrations on the inside that somehow pick up some detail or reflect something of what is in the outside jacket. And some quite important and successful books, authors, were first published in those forms. For example, 
The Last King of Scotland by Giles Foden, which went on to win the Whitbread First Novel Prize and has now been filmed, was first published like that. The flip side of it all was those books cost more to produce than hardbacks. Why on earth did you do it then? For marketing reasons. Part of the marketing cost associated with the book, you are spending an extra 50p to produce each book. So even though you're charging less than the hardback, it still made sense for us actually to do that for a while. But I, I really did think it did make sense. I mean, you came up with some wonderful beautiful covers. If it cost more to produce, your concern was you didn't have an, enough of the hard covers in the stores to, to meet the demand. Yeah, but Why don't you just produce more hard covers? And sell them cheaper? Bookshops have space in their stores allocated to hard covers and space in their stores yeah, allocated okay. to okay. soft covers and were prepared even though so we would be selling these chapter paperbacks to them for nine pounds ninety nine as opposed to a hardback which would be fourteen ninety nine, fifteen ninety nine, sixteen ninety nine or whatever. We would just accept a lower margin on those sales. We'd sell, you know, a few thousand of those into the bookshop and that would then provide a better platform for the eventual mass market paperback which would be where you generate the margin, to be blunt. So, how many of these would have been produced then, roughly? How many titles? 50 to 100, I mean, I, I am estimating. How could one get a list of those? Well, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure there is any real answer to that one. Okay. Apart from looking through the Faber catalogues. Is there, incidentally, a bibliography of Faber? No. And you know, of course, there is no history of Faber. There isn't, no. Why not? <laughs> Well, I mean, various things have been produced internally. The Joseph Connolly book titles is one thing which has a small bit of textual history at the front of the book, but it's not a proper history of Faber, and I wouldn't really use it as a source for history of Faber either. We're quite wary of vanity publishing, I suppose, is the point. <laughs> so, although I'm not, I'm not ruling it out, but we, we always worry that perhaps other people wouldn't be as interested in the history of Faber <laughs> as we are. My father thought for a while that perhaps he should write a history of Faber, but then he got distracted by other things and he's no longer around to do it. I wouldn't rule it out, but I think we feel that generally the most interesting people in the history of Faber, it's probably best if they speak through their own words rather than just try and do something which in the end would be just stringing together a lot of what they've written with. What I find most interesting in publishers' histories is the stories behind particular books and series and things that stand out that would be particularly, and I'll just close with this question, and that is with innovations that may have come out of those houses, things like, well, obviously Penguins in 1935. Yeah. Not that that was so much of an innovation, they just copied Albatross from mm -hmm. Germany, but the fact that he brought it here yeah. and, you know, added a bunch of different elements that made it big. Maybe you could answer that question, if any. What innovations did Faber and Faber bring to the publishing business? In its history, I can think of one very recent one, it's a, a series called Faber Finds. The idea there is to take titles that may or may not have first been published by Faber, in fact a lot of them weren't first published by Faber, and which are now into print, and where we can now use print-on-demand technology to bring them back into print, I'm almost putting that in quotation marks, because we only will print in response to an order. We have an algorithm that has a... That's your uh, backlist, right? Not just our backlist, other no. publishers' backlist. Okay. I mean, as long as we've signed up the rights to it, obviously. Yeah. So we catalogue it, we advertise it, we publicize it to a certain extent. We don't actually print copies until, until somebody orders it, wants a copy. And the quality POD of the technology books? is, I'll show you some books in a moment, but yeah. POD technology is now such that one can do that at an affordable level price for each book. Obviously, you don't give it so much a discount to the retailer because they're only doing it on order and you have a very simple royalty agreement with the author. So it's a bonus for all concerned, and we've brought hundreds of titles back into print in that way. One of the ways 
we decide whether or not it is worth doing that with a particular title, because lots of people come with suggestions all the time about, oh, couldn't this title be back in print? If we go and look on our books to see what the in-print versions are selling for on our books, and if they're selling for tens or twenties or even you know hundreds of dollars, then that indicates to us that there is a demand for these books that it's probably worth satisfying by bringing out new versions of them, not as rivals in any sense to the antiquarian book original, but as uh, another form in which people can get the text, which is what they're looking for. I think we're being fairly innovative in the electronic e-publishing sphere of things as well. Taking the latest technology and And applying it to... That's really just beginning now, and a lot of what we've been doing over the last few years is about getting our ducks in order Mm -hmm. when that takes off. So just ordinary, simple, boring things like making sure we have the right metadata associated with our titles so that we're in a good position to respond when e-publishing takes off, which it is. Who knows whether or not 10% or 90% of an eventual book's readership will reach it through an electronic means, but even if it's only 10%, it's enough enough for us to, to make sure we have to address it. And more than anything, I would say, in this environment, it is the quality of the editorial eye that publishers bring. That's what they offer. Right. And even more so these days. I think that's absolutely right. We like to think we're quite well set up for that, but obviously we need to make sure that we're not complacent about it either. The coming proliferation of e-publishing also emphasises the value in the original printed book as an object. So I think that there's going to be perhaps more of almost a binary split between the people who just want to read the text, however it comes to them, And then there are the people who value the book as an object and making sure that we are designing and producing books, or I should say continuing to design and produce books in a way that satisfies that demand will probably be more important, actually. I was going to say, yeah, because you're competing with a different format. There has to be something special about about the printed book. Well, thank you for throwing light on all of the special titles that Faber has published over the years and some ideas on which ones to go after. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Toby Faber, in addition to being the grandson of founder of Faber and Faber, is a director of the firm and an author in his own right, having published Stradivarius and Fabergé's Eggs. Both highly collectible. Collectible books about collectibles, one might almost say. <laughs> Thanks very much. You're welcome.